0: Amen. Amen. Let's turn again to Isaiah chapter 30. <clears throat> Isaiah 30. We are not, in fact, going to be able to cover the whole chapter today. Ambitious plans met reality this week as I was preparing. So we are, I'm going to read um, Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 to 22. This is the word of God. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. And to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace, an oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, From where come the lioness and the lion, the adder, and the flying fiery serpent? They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for a time to come as a witness forever, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore thus says, the Holy One of Israel. Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse whose breaking comes "...suddenly, in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness and in trust." shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. Let's pray. Father, this is a word from you that we need to hear. So we pray that you would prepare all of us to listen To receive, to believe, to respond in faith, in joyful obedience, and trust, and patience. For you are good. Help us to believe that. Be our teacher. Turn us in the way we should go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, State Farm Insurance has been running this series of commercials that feature people who are in help, and they say something, and it brings to them help, but the wrong kind of help. You may have seen these. There's a couple, and their house is flooding from a broken faucet, and they say, this is ludicrous, and then all of a sudden, a rapper shows up, a guy named Ludicrous, by the way. I had to look up who that was. Um, He shows up, and um, he sings even worse than I do, by the way. Uh, Like a good neighbor, State Farmers, in my head, he sings worse than I do. Let me live with my illusions, okay? Um, (laughs) So Ludacris shows up because they said ludacris, right? And that's not helpful. They need, who do they need? Jake from State Farm, of course. Um, And another one, a father's handing the keys to his daughter, and she says, are you joking? You must be joking. And so Jimmy Fallon shows up. He's like, it's a little early in the morning for jokes. And then he realizes, of course, they need Jake from State Farm. It's it's a ridiculous premise for a series of commercials. I really think they were just trying to think of an excuse to get more celebrities into their commercials. But it, it gets you thinking about when you're in distress, when you're in a tight spot, when you're facing something bad, right, what kind of help do you think you need? What kind of help do you turn to? And if we really think about our lives in a very honest way, I think we'll realize that we've all been lulled into a very secular and pragmatic way of thinking that actually marginalizes and sidelines God and his word and separates it from the important matters of life. So we go to church and we read our Bibles and we pray so that we can feel better and we can have some hope, but... When we're dealing with a real crisis or a real problem, we're looking to almost anyone or anything other than God and his word for help. Turning to the Bible and to prayer for wisdom in our practical needs can feel sometimes as useless as having Jimmy Fallon show up to tell jokes or Ludacris show up to rap when you need your insurance company. For Jerusalem and Judah, they're in a situation where they are facing a very real And very imminent threat to their very existence as a people, and that is the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army has been present throughout this section of Isaiah that we've been in for some time. And they're the big threat. They're the big baddies in the world. They are taking people over. They've already taken over northern Israel. So 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel have already been conquered by the Assyrians. The northern capital of Samaria has been sacked. All of those people have been deported. They've been lost. They're now known in history as the Lost Tribes of Israel because their identity as a people has been lost. And to southern Judah, northern Israel was bigger. They were more powerful. They were wealthier. How in the world is southern Judah supposed to stand up against the Assyrian army if even even northern Israel could not do so? So they need help. Now, throughout Isaiah, Isaiah has been telling them the word of God, that God will be their defender, that God will deliver them, that the Assyrian army will only get so far before God stops them. In fact, God has even spelled out very specifically how far they're going to get before God stops them. But for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, this is not practical help. You want us to trust this prophet who says that he's speaking the word of God, who's giving us assurance that the largest and most powerful army in the world is not going to crush us. They wanted something that had more horsepower behind it. Literally, they needed in their minds, real help. And where do you go to get horses and chariots, but you have to go to Egypt? They're the only people around who can possibly compete with the Assyrian army. They have hundreds of horses. They have hundreds of chariots. And so they've said, we will flee on swift horses. We will ride on horseback when God has told them, in return and in rest, you'll find your salvation. They don't want to hear that. Now, the key thing to keep in mind about Judah going to help, get help from Egypt is that they had not asked the Lord about it. They had not sought the Lord's will in this matter. They hadn't said to Isaiah, Okay, Isaiah, we're thinking about going to Egypt, but we're not going to go unless the Lord tells us that we should go. So why don't you pray, and we'll have the priests consult Umum and Thuram, and we'll look for the word of, of the Lord. They didn't do that. The Lord says very clearly, stubborn children who carry out a plan but not mine and who make an alliance but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin who go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to seek refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. There's a play on words That begins this oracle in verse 1. When God says they are making an alliance, but not of my spirit. This is actually a very interesting word in Hebrew. It's a word that's translated here as alliance. But the same word can be translated as a covering or a blanket. And it also can be translated as an image or an idol. And in fact, it's used in all three ways right here in Isaiah. In verse 22, where I stopped reading... God says, you will defile your carved idols. And that word that's translated carved idols is the same as this word that's translated in verse 1 as alliance. Just a couple chapters ago, in chapter 28, verse 20, God was mocking the people of Judah because they were looking for a blanket to cover them, and it was too short, it was too narrow to effectively cover them. Why is God using this word in this way? Here's here's the point, and this is where we need to do some self-examination here. God is saying to his people that when you're looking for help out there in the world, and you're not consulting me, you're not going to my word, you're not going to get spiritual advice from trusted people, you're not praying about it, you're just saying, I need help, I'm going to go get help. You're making an alliance You're you're saying, here's the person, here's the thing, Here's here's the help that I need. But it's like a blanket that's too narrow. It's too short. It cannot really cover you. And it is an idol that is a snare. It becomes an object of worship for you because now you couldn't possibly think of living without it once you become used to that help from the world. There's two things to know about the help of Egypt. Very clear in this chapter. One is that the help from Egypt was very expensive. And two is that the help from Egypt was entirely useless. When we are dealing with spiritual problems, life problems, so often we think that the fix is something that the world has on offer for sale but it's not. Now, I want us to be careful about what we're saying and what we're not saying here. I'm not saying that if you have cancer, you just go home and pray and ask God to cure the cancer and you don't go see a doctor and get medical treatment. No, you go with biblical principles and biblical principles include the use of medicine that God has appointed as right means. But, if we're concerned, about the decline of our culture. We're concerned about rising anti-Christian attitudes. We're concerned about the Christian viewpoint being marginalized. There is more power for transformation of lives in the Word of God and the Spirit of God than there ever could be in any political movement that the world has ever come up with or any sort of media outlet that the world is running. Those things are demanding of your time, demanding of your attention. Many of them are saying, the world is on fire, the world is on fire, but we have the only real answer. Come here and listen to us, vote for us, support us, watch us. You know, and, and it's so easy to give your heart to that stuff. It is easy. But God is saying, that's Egypt. That's Egypt. Or, when you're family is under stress, is under pressure, your marriage is struggling, your children are having a difficult time, and the world might tell you that what you really need more than anything else is just to go on a nice vacation, go on a cruise, go to an island, get away from it all, right? That's expensive. Does it work? No. (laughs) No. You end up coming back from your vacation, you're tired, you've spent all your money, and you're back to the same exact problems that you had before you left, right? Or sometimes it's like, well, we're not talking to each other, we have a broken relationship, let's find something that we can binge watch to pass the evening hours so that we don't have to talk to each other. Consumes all of your time, which is a very limited commodity, it's the one thing we all have just the same amount of, consumes it up. It's very expensive in the use of time, and yet it's absolutely useless. What we need is the Lord. We need the Lord to give us hope. We need the Lord to give us confidence. We need the Lord to lead us in his will. In, in the Bible, the world is presented to us over and over again in terms of two different great civilizations that were around Israel. And they become symbolic, and they are Egypt and Babylon. And they even continue throughout the rest of the Bible to be this symbolism for the world. So the world can be Egypt or the world can be Babylon, and there's a difference between the two. The world as Babylon is the world that stands in violent opposition to the people of God. That threatens the people of God. That wants to enslave and oppress the people of God. And Babylon makes us afraid. So when things in the world are making you feel afraid, feel like all the powers of the world are against us, everything is is out to get us, we're not safe anymore, our freedoms are going to be taken away, whatever the narrative is, that's Babylon. But Egypt is the world promising to help us. It's the world holding out hope. We have chariots. We have horses. We're one of the largest and most powerful civilizations on earth. Befriend us, and we will be on your side. When God's people fall into worldliness, it comes from either compromising with Babylon out of fear or from relying on Egypt in misplaced faith. When the pressure of this world causes you to be tempted to deny Christ, to avoid persecution or ridicule, or makes you feel targeted for your faith, that's Babylon, and that can cause you to live in fear. And the word from the Lord to keep in mind when you are facing Babylon is, do not fear, for I am with you. But when the world is making a promise of help, offering resources that seem to be the answers to our problems. This is Egypt, with its chariots and horses. And the word we need to hear from the Lord in the face of Egypt is, do not trust in chariots and horses, trust in the Lord. Verse 6 gives us this really strange oracle on the beasts of the Negev. It's really interesting because this is in a section of Isaiah where you've had a lot of oracles about a lot of different nations. There's been oracle about Philistia, an oracle about Babylon, an oracle about Assyria, an oracle about Israel. And here we have an oracle about beasts in the wilderness. What in the world is going on in this section? Well, very simply, the Negev is the southern desert area to the south of Judah that lies between Judah and Egypt. It's a dangerous territory. It is a territory that has lions and poisonous snakes. It's also an area that has bandits. Um, A lot of marauding bandits hang out in the hills of the Negev. It's a place that you normally avoid. But Judah has a problem. And the problem is that the safe way to get in touch with Egypt would be to send an envoy along the coastal road. You would go down through Gaza. We all know where Gaza is now, right? So you would go down through Gaza to get to Egypt that way. But Gaza is already under the control of the Assyrians. Philistia has already fallen to the Assyrians, and so they can't send the envoys that way, so they're taking the much more dangerous route. They've got camels and donkeys laden with treasure and they're taking the very risky move of sending that caravan through the desert, and they are just hoping that it gets through. And right in the middle of their anxiety over, will the caravan get there or won't it? Is it going to be attacked by a marauding band of raiders? Do we, do we send enough soldiers to keep it safe? When, how are we going to know? And there was no, you know, there was no cell phone or, or internet or GPS tracking where you could know exactly where they were. They just had to wait and wait and wait. God comes in and mocks them and says, you're putting all your hope in the beast of the Negev. They're carrying treasures on the backs of donkeys and the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. Another way to translate that last line is Rahab the do-nothing. So often, when we get our hopes up about something that we think is going to be the answer, some, maybe it's some investment scheme that someone sold you on to say, oh, if you need a more secure retirement, just put your money over here. This has got a guaranteed rate of return, and you're going to be rich beyond your imagination. Or very often, it's a politician who's running for office and making all sorts of promises. We all know that a politician running for office will promise you anything as long as you promise your vote to them. Or it could be a doctor with a new medication, or it could be a vacation opportunity, or it could be something, whatever it is, whatever it is, for the deepest and truest things that we face in life, it is all Rahab, the do nothing. The more treasure, the more time, the more anxiety we pour into it, the less we're going to get out of it. And in the meantime, It's not just a matter of being distracted by the false promises of the world. It's worse than that because as we're distracted by the false promises of the world, the last thing we want to hear is the true word of God that would come along and say, do not trust in chariots and horses. And so we pick up in verse 8 and God actually calls for a double written testimony against his people. He says, now go, write it before them on a tablet, inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. As a pastor, I've sat with people Are in distress. They're lonely. They're struggling. They're anxious. They're afraid. And they want help. And so I bring them the Word of God and I say, We need to remember that God is good. We need to remember that God is taking care of you. You need to remember that He can always be trusted. And you need to wait on the Lord. And so often they look at me like, Is that the best you got? I thought you were going to give me something practical that would really help me. Instead, you're just telling me that God is good and that I can trust him and that I just need to wait on him. And in that moment, they think, we all think when we're in that moment, that what we most need from God is for God to change our circumstances and to do it now. When really, what needs changing is our hearts. If the promises of God sound empty and hollow to us, if the presence of God is not comforting to us, if the goodness of God seems like a useless commodity to us, it is not our circumstances that are the problem, it's our hearts. It's our hard and stubborn hearts. And in Africa, you know what they do. They go and see the witch doctor. You're like, well, the pastor's not going to help me there's a witch doctor, I'll go take my kid who's sick to the witch doctor, or I'll go, you know, there. Or, increasingly, as Africa becomes more and more Christian, they're turning to the prosperity gospel. You know, this pastor tells me that I need to trust the Lord in my poverty, and I need to be faithful with what he's given me to do, and I need to be patient, and I need to rely upon him. Well, this other pastor tells me that if I send him $10, he'll pray for me, and God will give me $100. Let me send my $10 to him. It's that cheap, quick fix that seems like a good idea, but is not. And so God's people get to the point where they just say, I don't want to hear it anymore. Don't see visions. Don't prophesy what is right. Just tell me what I want to hear. Just tell me what I want to hear. And you know what the New Testament equivalent of that is? It's in 2 Timothy 4, where Paul is admonishing Timothy to preach the word. And he says, for the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine anymore, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And there's been all sorts of people who, in the name of God, even quoting the Bible, have been willing to tell people what they want to hear. And that's not the help that we need. The good news is, (laughs) as stubborn as we are, as foolish as we are, God loves us. The good news is that God loves us so much that he's actually more committed to our eternal spiritual well-being than we are. When he sees us turning after the world and its empty promises and refusing to hear his true word, he acts in love. And in love, he sends affliction and disaster to break us of our idolatrous pursuit of the world and our rebellious rejection of him. Therefore, verse 12 says, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, and trust in oppression, and perverseness, and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip water up out of the cistern. And we can read passages like this in the Old Testament and say, oh, there's the God of the Old Testament again threatening disaster, threatening destruction. He's going to smash them so completely they're not even going to have a a piece of pottery big enough to scoop up water. Oh, God is so full of wrath. But we're missing that this is love. Because in verse 12, it says, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a wall bulging out about to collapse. And it's breaking comes suddenly. God is warning them. If you keep going down this road, if you keep building this wall with Egyptian bricks, thinking it's going to hold back the flood water of the Assyrians, it's going to get to the breaking point, and when it breaks, it's going to break suddenly. When the stock market crashes, it crashes hard. You remember the images from some of the great stock market crashes where you had stockbrokers who were ready to just end it all? because the stock market crashed. If you build a wall out of Egyptian bricks, it's going to break through. And and God will allow it to come because what we need is not better bricks. What we need is to trust in him. Last week, Dan Iverson made reference, he was in uh, Luke 15, he was making reference to the, the lost coin and the lost sheep and then the the prodigal son so we all know the story of the prodigal son he says to his father basically I wish you were dead give me my money now you're of no use to me I just want your stuff let me go and do what I want to do that's that's really what these rebellious children of God are doing here they're saying stop with your promises if you're not going to give me the goods we'll go get the goods from somebody else We don't want you. We don't want your promises. We don't want your presence. We want the stuff. And so the prodigal son takes his stuff, and he goes. And you might think, well, if God really loved the prodigal son, why did he let him go to such extreme distress? Why did he let him get to the point where all of his money was spent, he had nothing, He was feeding pigs, and he was longing to be able to eat the slop that the pigs were eating. Why did God let him get that far gone? And there's a very simple reason, and we all know human nature well enough to know. What if, as soon as the money had run out, God sent the prodigal son some help to change his circumstances so that he had a little bit more money? what would he do with it? Spend it on riotous living. He had to come to himself. And to come to himself, he had to be with the pigs longing to eat their slop. And so God, in love, because he's actually more committed to our true and eternal spiritual good than we are, will allow a moment of collapse or despair, a moment of hopelessness, a moment of distress so deep that all of the Egyptian help has finally been shown to be as utterly worthless as it really is, and we finally turn to the Lord. God's telling them this ahead of time. He's telling them in verse 15, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and in rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. It's exactly what we need to hear, and it's exactly what we don't want to hear in our anxious, world-chasing desperation. Now, I think about my history with trying to fix things. I got home from Uganda. Well, Beth told me before I got home that my car had a bad starter. It was, it was wouldn't start. So all this weather was coming, and it um, really would be helpful to have more than one car. Um, And so I get home, and I'm thinking, okay, I need to get the starter replaced. But then I think, well, maybe I can do it myself. At which point, my family sort of, I didn't even tell them because I knew what they were going to say about it. But it actually worked. I actually got the starter replaced. I was very proud of myself. But the reason why I didn't tell my family, and the reason why I knew what their reaction was going to be, is because we've had our share of incidents where it's like, oh, I'll fix that and I get the wrong part and it doesn't fit right and I break something while I'm trying to fix it and then I get frustrated and then I get mad at myself and then I go buy more things that are supposed to be the right thing and I try to fix it and it breaks more and at the end of the day, I end up calling a professional who ends up coming in and I have to pay the professional the full amount but I also have to pay for all the stuff that I bought thinking that it was gonna fix it, right? I don't know if you've lived that experience but we have a couple times in our family. And uh, that is, God is telling his people ahead of time, look, you're sending this caravan loaded with treasure to Egypt. It's not going to work. And then he tells them graciously in verse 15, in the middle of it all, he says, thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And the fact that God is So solemn and committed to this promise that he's giving them is introduced by how God refers to himself. He says, for thus says, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. You see that in verse 15? It's a combination of names and titles for God that's used nowhere else in Isaiah. The Lord is Adonai. That means he's the ruler and master of his people. The all caps, G-O-D, whenever you see either Lord or God in all caps in your Bible, that's Yahweh. He is the great I Am. So the master and ruler of his people is the great I Am, which means he's unchangeable and he's self-sufficient. And he is the Holy One of Israel. The one who is unlike anyone else. The one who is for his people. And how do the people respond? They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Rejecting this call leads to more disaster. God warns them ahead of time because he loves them. And then here's where God blows me away, because I'm not like this. I've often said everybody should be very, 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 very happy that I'm not God, me especially, because I don't have this kind of patience. God's been promising them deliverance from the Assyrians for chapter upon chapter, oracle after oracle. He's telling them exactly. He told them before they ever sent the first caravan up to the Assyrians to get the Assyrians to help them out against Syria and Israel. Remember that way back in chapter seven and eight? God's like, don't do this. You're going to go down a really bad road. But they're like, nah, we're going to do it anyway. Right? And they send this money up to the Assyrians the Assyrians who were supposed to help them, the Assyrians who now are the threat because they invited a tiger into their tent. And so now they're sending to Egypt, and God says, don't do it. And literally, as the treasure caravan's making its way across the desert, God's saying, it's just Rahab the do-nothing. It's going to cost you all this gold and all this anxiety, and it's not going to do you any good. It's going to be building a wall of bricks to hold back a flood, and when it breaks, it's going to break very suddenly. And in an instant, it's not going to do you any good. Listen, I've told you, in returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and in trust will be your strength. And they say again, nah, don't want to hear it. Stop talking to us about the Holy One of Israel. We've got our plan. It's a good plan this time. It's going to work. And God says, no, it's not. It'd work. Now at that point, I would simply say, look, I told you, you didn't listen. I told you again, you didn't listen. I'm telling you again, and you still ain't listening, I'm out. There's only so much I can do. But that's not what God says. Look at verse 18, that's not what God says. First of all, just look at the fact that verse 18 starts with, therefore, therefore. In light of all of this stubborn rebellion, in light of all of this foolish worldliness, because you're so hard-hearted, because you're so rebellious, therefore, the Lord's going to wipe you off the face of the earth and be done with you and move on to somebody else. No. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The Lord's waiting. And we're in chapter 30 now, which means we're getting really close to 36, 37, where we're going to get the answer to this question that's going to come very suddenly. And I've been hinting at it as we've been through Isaiah. Because God is going to come to the rescue. But it is going to come when they're absolutely at the end of all of their hope. Every single walled city and town in all of Judah has been captured, and the largest army in the world is marching on Jerusalem, and it's very obvious the Egyptians are not coming to help, and they have literally nowhere else to turn, and so finally they say, Lord, help us. And God says, I was waiting for you to say that. Waiting patiently. He says, for a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. Oh, I'm sure they had asked God for help before. Sometimes the same way we're asking for help from God. And that is asking while we're working out our own deal to save ourselves on the side. But only when they get to the point where they actually cry out to the Lord, does God hear and does God answer? And does God send one angel in one night who wipes out 185,000 Assyrians and the Assyrian army turns tail and goes home? Egypt couldn't do that. Egypt didn't want to do that. But the Lord did it. The Lord did it. But it won't be over because, unfortunately, God's people, after that deliverance, are going to continue to seek Egypt and continue to seek help from the Lord, like literally Egypt, if you know the story. But the Assyrians go away from being a power in the world, and the Babylonians come onto the scene as being the power in the world. And when the Babylonians are closing in on Jerusalem and threatening it, guess who Jerusalem trusts in? Egypt, again. And this time, Jerusalem is completely destroyed. But even after Jerusalem is completely destroyed, there's a remnant there who refuses to accept what God has sent their way. They conspire to kill the governor that the Babylonians put over them. And then they decide that they're going to flee for refuge to, wait for it, Egypt. Our addiction to Egypt is very, very stubborn. I don't know what your Egypt is. But there is a place where you are putting your hope and your expectation for what you think you really need. And it is your Egypt. And you need to hear from the Lord today that Egypt is a do-nothing. It's an expensive waste of time. Though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction... Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols with, overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You'll scatter them as unclean things, and you'll say to them, be gone. God is patiently waiting until we wake up and come to ourselves and say, you're right, Lord, these things are never going to help me. You alone are the one I need. God's grace perseveres and waits until his people come back to him. As we close here, let's look again at verse 15 and 18 and just hear the word of God to us. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. I don't know what distressing circumstances you're facing. I know some of you well enough to know what they are. But God is waiting to be gracious to you. It doesn't mean that as soon as you turn to Him, He's going to change your circumstances, because that's not what we most need. Got a quote from Corey Tenboom yesterday, as I was working on my sermon. You know, Corey Tenboom, she was the only member of her household in the Netherlands to survive the German occupation and the Holocaust. Her father, died shortly after they were arrested by the Nazis, and her sister Betsy died later in Ravensbrück concentration camp. But it was there in Ravensbrück, in the flea-infested dormitory of a German death camp, that Corey learned that God's love reaches and comforts his people anywhere. And later she said, I have experienced his presence in the deepest, darkest hell that men can create, I have tested the promises of the Bible, and believe me, you can count on them. You can count on them. And it's all a matter of where we're looking. What are we focusing on? Are we focusing on our circumstances and judging God's goodness in the light of what we think we see around us? Or are we anchoring ourselves in the character of God and the promises of God, and we're looking at our circumstances in the light of those eternal truths. The Apostle Paul said, this light momentary affliction is working for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, if you know anything about what the Apostle Paul went through, you would not call what he endured light momentary affliction i wouldn't sign up for a tenth of it but he said the light momentary affliction is working for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen he kept his eyes on christ he kept his eyes on eternity and that is the way to break ourselves of our addiction to looking to egypt As long as we're focused on our circumstances, as long as we're focused on our feelings, as long as we're focused on our own thought process of what we think, we see, and we're experiencing, as long as we're there, locked in, we are always going to be looking to Egypt for a way out. It's only when we lift up and we look to Christ. It's only when we look to Jesus as hebrews 12 says the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god we say here is one who endured far more than i will ever have to endure who endured suffering unimaginable who literally endured concentrated hell the wrath of god on the cross for the joy that was set before him the joy of having us be with him forever, the joy of pleasing his father, the joy of being able to say it is finished, the joy of finally accomplishing our deliverance from Babylon and from Egypt and from our sin and from death forever. We see him by faith seated at the right hand of the throne of God and we say in our hearts, there is my help and nowhere else. There is my hope and nowhere else there is the comfort that my soul needs and nowhere else and we wait on him and we go to him and we cry to him not as one option among many because we're trying to cover our bets but as our only hope the anchor of our souls the one who has made us his own and will keep us his own That's the way we overcome our addiction to Egypt and the futility of trusting in the world. Let's pray. Father, fix our eyes on Jesus. Even as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us to again fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, our righteousness, our hope, and our salvation. Our king, our captain, our champion, our Lord. Strengthen our faith in Christ through your word, through your spirit, through your table, we pray in Jesus' name.